Last week, I sat down with journalist, screenwriter, and almost astrophysicist Andy Bellin to discuss a lifetime of experience around the poker table. This week's episode is dedicated to his time at the Paris Review, a literary magazine that holds a special place in my heart. For those unfamiliar, the Paris Review was founded by George Plimpton, a true master of self-invention. Over the course of his career, Plimpton published 16 books, edited three collections, appeared in 29 films, and starred in 12 television programs. He played professional baseball, pitching to major league all-stars, served as quarterback for the Detroit Lions and Baltimore Colts, joined the PGA Tour, boxed with Archie Moore, and tended goal for the Boston Bruins. He played in the New York Philharmonic, performed stand-up comedy at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, tackled Robert Kennedy shooter Saran Saran, dated Jacqueline Kennedy, and was appointed as Fireworks Commissioner of New York City after he broke the Guinness Book of World Records for detonating the world's largest firework. He also, of course, founded and served as editor-in-chief of the Paris Review from its inception in 1953 until his death in 2003. Andy Bellin had the great privilege of working hand-in-hand -hand with George and other terrific editors like Elizabeth Gaffney, Daniel Kunitz, and James Linville. This week, I'm delighted to present you with some behind-the-scenes footage of life at the Paris Review. I read an interview with you, I think, or maybe it was... I think it was an interview with you where you sort of whimsically commented about how you bullshitted your way into a job at yeah. the Paris Review as a technology editor or something. How did you get mixed up with George Plimpton and the whole Paris Review crowd? So I had been working, I don't remember if it was some environmental organization, and then I I had gotten exposed to writing for the first time because I had studied physics and astrophysics and um, really saw my future or the only possible future or something that was related to the hard sciences. But particularly in those fields the they become so esoteric as you move up that like you know it gets to a point where like 40 people on earth know what you're talking about and it's a fairly lonely existence so i sought some sort of application of science um that had you know more intercourse with the world and um it just kept letting me get exposed to other aspects of things and then instead of pursuing hard science, I sort of started writing about science. And then I ended up having to write something. And this is a testament to my Dalton education, but like I hadn't taken a writing class since 10th grade. <laughs> and there I was 24 years old. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I really like this. Yeah. So the advice I'd gotten from a friend was just immerse yourself in the world. And I think by that she meant, you know, read as much as you can, go take a class, learn this. And, you know, huckster that I am, I was like, oh, I'm just going to fake my way into this. Yeah. So um, I had reached out to a couple of friends in publishing and it turned out that the Paris Review was looking for somebody to sort of bring it into the 21st century. What is this, late 90s, early 2000s? This is 93. Two, three, something like that. Yeah. And they, they didn't have the internet. Was yeah. ten years later. There was no internet. There, there, there it was, early, was early. This was early. This was when people were like, "Can you tell me about the internet?" And that yeah. was literally the line that I used on Plimpton when I, I got an audience with him, and I said, "The future." How did you at a cocktail party? No, no. We, there was a. They were looking for an editor who was computer savvy and all this kind of Before stuff. Before the days of LinkedIn. Yes, and um, I, I, through a friend, God, it was probably Lizzie Gottlieb. Somebody I don't remember. Um, 
got me the interview and I just walked in and I literally handed him my, you know, my resume, which probably had seven spelling mistakes on it. And like, but all of my scientific publications as like work I've published. Right. And he was just kind of laughing. And I was like, the future of your magazine, Mr. Plimpton, is the internet. Yeah. And he went, good God, man, you're hired. <laughs> and he hired me. Um <laughs> and the truth was like where I was a scientist and I could use a computer, I didn't know what the internet was. Right. So I went out and hired somebody to do my job for me. <laughs> and I just took my time there as like this unpaid internship. And I learned everything that I could. So someone else was doing the internet aspect yeah. of this. Yeah. yeah. Joe Mackin, uh, who's <laughs> a great guy. He's still around. Um well, you were just under the tutelage and mentorship of, of, the of great George. Editors there. Well, not not just George. I mean, George was sort of very, very much upstairs in his ivory tower. But like, the editors there were the smartest people I'd ever met in my Who'd life. Who'd you work with? A woman named Elizabeth Gaffney, who knew everything about everything. A great guy named Daniel Kunitz, who's who's like a, a brilliant editor. Um, the sort of old hand at that time was a guy named James Linville, who I think still to this day, like has read every book ever written. Like these were really bright people who really cared about literature, who really cared about the future of little magazines and they, the important role they, they served in finding unknown writers. And, you know, the Paris review had pulled out of the, you know, the slush submissions like Rick Bass and all of these great writers. I just read a short story. Um, uh, the the legend of pig eye reeves the you know the boxing yeah, sure. the boxing one i so, think that that was in the paris review uh i don't remember but the uh. the review i mean you know the the stuff that they have published and discovered is extraordinary so these magazines that were running on fumes and goodwill and reputation um hell, making, hell of a trio making fumes, absolutely, goodwill, making yeah. absolutely no money and were you know in in perpetual peril it felt like you were fighting the good fight. And I was there just just to learn from just these observing. people. And sponge. Um, yeah. And I learned a lot. I made a, you know, a ton of stunning, like colossal blunders that to this day, like still I cringe. I'll walk down the street and just like go. Probably should have oh got God. you fired, but <laughs> um there was I mean, if not for the good graces of Elizabeth Gaffney, but there was like one of my first assignments was to uh, was to copy edit something. And I don't remember it was somebody's interview might've been like, it's probably like Ted Hughes or something. Yeah. Um, and he referenced the Edmund Spencer poem, uh, fairy queen. Mm. And there it is written in type F A E R I E. And I grab out my fucking red pen and circle. And I'm like, that's not how you spell fairy. And, you know, these poor people had to pull me aside and be like, Andy, like, you don't know what you're doing. So there was a, there was a real like, you know, load, shoot, aim kind of thing that I was doing. But I ended up being sort of a productive member of the community and I did serve some purpose with, you know, helping the technology aspect of it. And in the meantime, I became very close with George and George took a liking to me and I eventually ad admitted my, uh, you know, con my con and that I was an imposter and he found it comically charming. <laughs> and then, you know, of course he did. asked uh, me to write hilarious. something. And then I wrote a short story and he was like, you know, good Lord, man, this is terrible. 
and then asked me to write something else. And it was in the first person. He was like, you know, you actually write this very well. He was like, you should write about yourself yeah. in the same way that he does. Yeah. And then he said, what do you do? And I said, I don't know, I play poker. And he was like, and then he got me a gig writing for uh, writing an article for Esquire right. to write about an underground poker club. Mm -hmm. And that turned into Poker Nation. And that was the beginning of my, my career. That's interesting. Was were the office? I mean, offices. I, it was run out of his apartment on Fifth Avenue. Right? No, seventy second in the East River, five forty one East seventy second. It's the last building. Did he live there as well? He or? lived in the second and third floors, and the reviews offices were in the basement. Right. Uh, first With, floor uh, in underground basement. basement or first. Floor? It was first floor, so there was an office where the editor sat, and then there was a basement. Um, where all the interns and yo-yos like me sat. Yeah. And I actually had an office. Like I was the only one with an actual closed door office and it was the meter room. Well, how, how did, what made, what made you so well, lucky? Because oh. it was like filled with asbestos and nobody else wanted it. Oh, like, fair. So, or um, maybe a special office for the technology. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Specialist. So that was my, that was my chair. Um, but it was glorious. I mean, it was you know that was the golden age. Was it as lively and dis? I wouldn't use the word disorganized, but I've I've seen the pictures, I guess, of people running around the office. You know, I, it was exactly as you picture. It was fairly disorganized, and you know, like I, it's funny because I did say like the magazine survived on goodwill, and the truth was like when we answered the phone there, we didn't say Paris Review, we answered the phone Plimpton office. Yeah, because. Two of the staff members who were paid were paid by George as his personal assistants, but they were they were Paris Review editors. And you know, when we were fighting for for a short story, you know, Tina Brown would publish a a, a John Updike. You know, Updike's got a new short story, and Tina Brown calls and says, "I'll pay you twenty five thousand dollars for it." And then Plimpton has to call Updike and say. I'll pay you a hundred dollars, but I'll throw you a hell of a party. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how we survived. And everything was like, you know, just like spitting gum wrappers because George was the like the spokesman for McCallum. So all of our parties only had scotch. Yeah. Right? Like there was like there really wasn't McCallum. a bar. It was because George would get it, you know, six cases of McAllen and that's what we would serve. Right. So we were always broke, but it was just fighting the good fight, right? I mean, there was no better way to learn the business by being like, your job, Andy, is to solicit advertising, edit copy, read the slush, take out the garbage. Like that to, was, yeah. it, it was the- All, all, you know, all on the cards. Yeah. It was just the best. It was just the best. And I, I'm- you know, and it's embarrassing because other people were actually really good at the literary aspect and I didn't know anything at the time, but, you know, I, uh, I've I hope I've made amends, but. <laughs> How did George get himself appointed as fireworks commissioner of New York? What was that about? So I think that was largely an honorary title. It's funny. I can see his book right over there, Fireworks. <sighs> um, George was absolutely just, he was fascinated by fireworks oh, and the fat man thing the so and yeah. then the chair and the yeah yeah um he he was just he turned into not that he wasn't always but like he turned into a child around um fireworks just like jumping up and he down. just couldn't he couldn't control himself he loved them so much yeah. and um it was like my first week at the paris review and most of the editors had gone off to some estate of some friend of Plimpton's in Lake Como. 
and um casually and they were doing something there i don't remember what it was and randomly over the lake um somebody started shooting fireworks and the story goes i wasn't there but i think kunitz told me the story that george like after you know 18 scotches and everybody's hammered he hears these faint pops and george knows these are fireworks and he kind of looks up and you see this sort of the the lights flickering off the off the lake and george apparently popped up in the middle of the night dead of night on lake homo and just starts running towards fireworks because he can't control himself and tripped over a lawn chair and this and that and like my first meeting with george day one was when he came back from lake homo and it was like his arm was a sling in a sling his face was like you know had had scratches all over it because he was such a child around fireworks that like his personal safety did not matter like right. if he could get to the fireworks before they stopped he, he was going to get there so george was um you know a bit of a celebrity and i think somehow ingratiated himself with the grucci family mm. who were the people who used to sponsor the fireworks and in new york in new york and, for what for new year's or something uh fourth of july yeah and um george being george talked them into naming him fireworks commissioner of new york interesting yeah. interesting andy final final question here who is george plimpton to you so my youngest son uh is named george and George Ames Farish Bellin and George Ames Plimpton. Um, I named my son after George because uh, I forget just the the sort of literary prowess and the editing and writing thirty something books. Um, George was, and I'm sure this is an antiquated term that's probably not appropriate to use a Renaissance man, like a mm. Renaissance person, however. Um, he knew so much about so many things and cared so much about so many topics um, that he was inspirational on like nine different levels, right? Mm. Just being around him, his breadth of knowledge, his concern for the earth, his his ability to help other people. We would go, we'd be walking through an airport and some random dude would spot him and be like, oh man, you're George Plimpton. And this was not a guy that you were going to spend your day with. And George would say, would you like to come have a drink with us? And all of a sudden we're drinking with, you know, Frank, who uh, was a plumber in Queens, but read, uh, you know, bogeyman. It was the greatest thing ever. <laughs> and um, so George was a mentor. He was inspirational. And it's funny, like I was only there a couple of years. Like a lot of guys knew George better than I did, but I I loved him. He got a tremendous kick out of me. Um, but there was also, there were all of these um lessons to be learned just from observing him it's like almost at a poker table where you're trying to figure out who's who like george the the way i write is very much an homage to george because he never took himself too seriously like he, there there was not this i know he's always sort of equated with the sort of gonzo journalists and stuff but mm -hmm. like he did not take himself seriously yeah. there's a great line in shadow box where he was like talking about his prowess as a fighter because uh, he ended up fighting Archie Moore. Yeah. And um, he said, I, I was born with something called um, a sympathetic response, 
which means that whenever struck, I begin to cry. <laughs> and it was just, that's who he was and how he lived his life. And um, I don't know, there was also the internship program at the Review was very important. The fact that George was such a caring person that he could never fire anybody. Yeah. So like, even when he found out I was an imposter, he promoted me. So I was like, <laughs> he promoted me to a position that I couldn't do much damage basically, yeah. but he couldn't, he, just, he couldn't bring himself to fire anybody. Right. Just, uh, so I feel like there was, there were, um, there were examples of how to live one's life that George either intentionally or unintentionally presented to all of us at the review and some of it stuck. So I don't know, George was somebody who meant the world to me, shaped my life, whether he meant to or not, by giving me the opportunity to present myself as something I, I wasn't, but then challenged me to learn to become the thing that I had faked that I was. Right. And it was, you know, it was the most definitive experience. Yeah. Andy Bellin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for coming, man. I appreciated it.